The Revision Speaker Series is a Guildhouse initiative bringing together creative minds from around the globe to discuss contemporary arts practice. Revision has been curated as a COVID response, enhancing connectivity, sustainability and well-being across the arts community. This podcast is an audio recording from a live Zoom session recorded on Ghana Country. What an incredible day we've had today. A roller coaster of weather, the richest of conversations. So thank you for joining us for this last panel of the day. I would like to pay my respects to the traditional owners of the unceded land of the Ghana people and pay my respects to traditional owners emerging present and future. We have heard from some incredible thinkers and doers today and um, we're not going to stop there. There are many more in the room. So thank you for being here. In 2020, editors Kate Larson, Jade Lilly, Kara Kirkwood and Jackie Brown released The Relationship is the Project and the title alone spoke to so many of us about why we do what we do. This title as an ethos really underpins the day. No matter what our artistic ambition looks like, the materials we use, the galleries we show in, at the end of the day, the relationships we build and the community we take part in are our drivers. We don't work in isolation, even if we are literally in isolation, but we have more connectors than ever before, and the first edition of the Relationship is the Project unpacked many connections. We're really lucky to gain interstate and regional insights with Kate Larson today, who'll be talking with Cara Kirkwood, Claire G. Coleman, and Anthony Peluso about many things, including the second book. Thank you, Debbie. I am never more aware than when we come together to talk about arts and culture that we do so here in Australia from the land of the oldest living continuing culture in the world, which is an extraordinary privilege. And it's an extraordinary privilege to be in this room with these extraordinary humans today. Welcome to this discussion about community-led and community-engaged practice, um, which was inspired by this book, The Relationship is the Project. As we just heard, it was the brainchild and curated by Jade Lilly, who brought together more than 20 um, thought leaders and practitioners um, from all over Australia to share right now advice on what contemporary best practice looks like um, when we work with communities. I'm Kate Larson. I am very proud to be the um, the book's project manager and one of its editors and contributors. And I'm absolutely thrilled to be here today to share some wisdom um, from some of its current and, drumroll, um, future contributors as we move towards the relationship is the project 2.0. Uh, I'll introduce them briefly before we launch into our conversation. Kara Kirkwood, as we heard, is another one of the RITPs, which is the shorthand for the relationship is the project contributors of the Mandadanchi and Mithika people. Kara is a national advocate for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, art, culture and creative industries currently as Head of First Nations Engagement and Strategy at the National Gallery in Canberra. Claire G. Coleman is a Noongar writer now based in Nam. She's published three novels and an acclaimed non-fiction book, Lies, Damn Lies, uh, which came out last, which was my personal favourite book of last year. Um, with collaborator Jen Ray, Claire is doing some fascinating work as the Centre for Rewelding around intersectional collaboration, speculative futuring and working with... <laughs> 
excuse me, for Thunder Break and working with communities in the areas of climate emergency, disaster, disaster risk and resilience. Finally, Anthony Peluso is Chief Executive here at Country Arts South Australia uh, on Ghana Country. His work there is driven by the stories of regional South Australia and creating experiences with and for lo- local communities that really can't be made anywhere else in the world. Welcome all and thank you for being here. Um, before I hand over to our panel, I wanted to share a quick definition of what we mean when we talk about community-led and community-engaged practice, which have currently emerged as contemporary label, uh, contemporary alternatives to um, what we in the past might have called community arts and cultural development or just community arts. As Jade writes in the book, community-engaged practice is not an art form. It's not an add-on. It's a way of working a deep collaboration between practitioners and communities to develop outcomes that are specific to that relationship and that time and that place. This means it changes from project to project, from community to community. It also means it's part of every art form, every strategy, organisation, and remit that involves work with people, and if it's not, it really should be. Maybe you could tell us why this type of work is important and, and how it's changed over recent years. Thank you, Kate, and thank you, Guildhouse people who are all in the room, including my parents, mum and dad. G'day. Firstly, I thought it would be potent to acknowledge that, um, yes, we're on Ghana country, always beautiful to be here. If It's not only a blackout in the room, but if we have an actual blackout, that might happen too, right? Because it's storming outside again. So if that happens, stay tuned. I was thinking about this in the, when I was Um, invited to speak here through you, Kate, thinking about the ideas in the book and what people have written about in relation to the relationship as the project and what community and cultural development can mean for people, what it can mean as a practice. And I guess under the conference symposium theme, I've called it a conference, just like I'm a professor. (laughs) Stop it. Um, The symposium theme of radical practice. And it reminded me that the most, the common kind of invisible thread throughout the book by every writer was about compassion and that the most, thank you, Anthony, he's uh, pushing the microphone in my face. Um, So it reminded me that the most radical practice anyone can be achieving in the next generation, in my belief, is actually compassion. And I think that that's because when we're talking about community and cultural development, we're talking about, um, for me, I see it as the core ingredient is to be, it's about empowering someone or a small group or a large group to feel confident enough to share their story through whatever form that might be, whether that be through art, through conversation, through sounds, through what it looks like, smells like, tastes like. I know that people have done CACD practice, for example, through cooking. Shout out to my mate, Jamie Lewis. And I know that, you know, there's myriad ways that we tell stories. I think that this is a really, I don't know what to say other than that we're in a kind of critical time in in the world, in this country, um, and there's no better time to really uh, think about how we're going to re-engage compassion. I think... I've said before that one of capitalism's greatest achievements has been the erosion of compassion and the erosion of empathy. I'm deeply passionate in my work that I do to engage across industry and I think that's one of the great foibles of the art sector is that we have never really, um, we've become very good at talking to ourselves but we actually need to talk outside of ourselves better. So I'm kind of um, deeply interested in what that shared language looks like, what that compassion looks like, not just in our roles in the arts but what we have got to offer the arts and I think that we know we've got heaps to offer 
other industries. And I think part of our stealth strategy over the next generation too should actually be to situate ourselves in other industries and take the skills that creativity has given us. I think that CACD practice is also one of the best audience builders, talking about art forms. Fantastic. Thank you, Cara. Um, on this subject of strategies, Claire, could you maybe unpack this idea of rewelding a little bit and, and how you engage communities in reimagining a potential future? Well, the uh, Centre for Rewelding um, developed out of collaborative work by myself and Dr. Jen Ray. And the part of the research practice of that was to imagine, in a way, the maximum extent of empathy when you're talking about the climate crisis. And, of course, the climate crisis has impacted us today. For some reason, everything we do lately has been impacted by the climate crisis. And we think about, about the, the climate crisis, it's kind of thinking about it wrong. We think about it as the world's getting hot or the world's becoming difficult to live in. But what we're not thinking about is that this impact will affect other people for many generations. And we don't, we don't think about this. And using that as a starting point, we've, we've looked into um, what happens if you extend the idea of empathy, not just to people who are not like yourself, but to people who are not yet born. And that was the kind of this, the starting point for this um, artistic practice, for this idea. And it all started from a video called Refugium that we produced um, in collaboration with Arts House. And then people asking us, what, can we make this idea of the Centre for Rewarding, which we, we made up as part of the video. We just invented this idea as a bit of speculative fiction. And people said, well, what, happened, what would it take to make, take, make this speculative fiction project a real project, which is what we've been working on. And part of it is acknowledging that the strongest impact on the survivors of climate change is going to be on their emotional state. What are the what are the tools that those people will need to stabilise their emotional state? And my God, what a storm! Uh, <laughs> and so we, we, that, that's kind of where we start. And the, the so among other things, as part of our artistic practice, we will, for example, have climate emergency preparation workshops where us as artists and speculative futurists will help members of the community or emergency management people to map what is the worst that could happen in a disaster and try and work out what they can do to save as much of their community and culture as possible. So the idea is not just what we think about is, is not can people survive, but can people, culture and livelihoods survive? And we take that to you know, emergency management people, to universities, this kind of provocation of, of what would it take to survive and what can you do to survive and who gets to survive. And we've often found that artists will come up with a scenario for disaster that people who are professional scenario mappers will not think of. The example we often use is um, during an event before the Centre World even existed, um, we're having, there was an event with disaster management people and one of the questions was during a pandemic thing before COVID this was, during the idea of um, mapping a pandemic and speculative futurism, somebody asked, what happens if there's a flood during a pandemic and everyone's swept into high, into like recovery centres and they've all got the pandemic? And the government planners said that could never happen. And so the, the idea that artists are actually better at thinking of scenarios and solutions than pretty much anyone else is because thinking about crazy shit is what we do for a job. <laughs> Such a good point. And I think, you know, I'm hoping the microphones are picking up some of the tumultuous weather that we are experiencing, um, at, you know, and it's a, because it's a great living example of the work we do with communities right now is not 
about theory. The people, you know, when we're engaging um, communities in our work, whether that's uh, artwork or in any other field, we're dealing with very extremely heightened, uh, immediate, multiple, significant crises all at once, and often with underrepresented or marginalised communities who are on the front line of that change. Anthony, I was going to ask you a more generic question, but before I get to that, I'm going to ask you to repeat an example you shared with me recently about the agenda items for working exclusively with regional communities and the type of things that you're having to talk about in everyday meetings now. Yes, not, thank you, Kate. Not, not a very artistic meeting, that one, unfortunately, but it was a very necessary one. And I just do want to start uh, also by acknowledging that um, how grateful I am to be here on Ghana Country. It's always great to be on country and, and working collaboratively with artists to, to build these conversations and to recognise that um, you know, conversations like this have been happening for many of the thousands of years, of course. Um, and yes, yeah, so on the one hand, Kate, that meeting was entirely comical and I did say to the team that I'll have to have a meeting with the entire staff and I'll call it the biblical meeting because there will only be three items on that meeting, how we're changing according to the change in the pandemic, how we're preparing for the flood in the, that's going to come to the Riverland where we have an art centre, and not to forget that we're coming into summer season, which is bushfire season, to make sure everyone is ready and prepared for their bushfire preparedness, not just for themselves and their own homes, but when they travel from one location to another and, and what they do in heat. And we all just stopped for a moment and went, oh, my God, what is going on with the world right now? And it is very real. And, and, in, and it's in that context that we are uh, considering how what is our engagement with regional communities and regional artists there's no point walking into a scenario like that and presenting it in the most amazing work on stage when, in fact, people are so consumed with things that need to take their attention. Um, and I think it comes right back to a point that I'll probably, you know, make it in time in this conversation, but about, about that human-to-human connection because that's, in the, in the end, what then sets the right context, the right understanding to, to, uh, for art and culture to, to play a, an important role in this world that we're in yeah. that is pretty crazy. Yeah. So... Um, it's often really helpful to have that example of what we don't want to achieve. So obviously we don't want to fly in something that isn't relevant, that isn't helpful, that isn't speaking directly to these communities and what they need right now. So what does good practice look like on the ground? What is the opposite of that uh, model that we're not interested in? Well, for us, the best practice model we um, employ at Country Arts SA is um, through a program where we work directly with communities um, from the very outset, and that program starts just with a cup of tea or a beer at the bar or wherever, wherever is the most appropriate place to congregate in that community. And we just do a lot of listening. We just we really want to understand what this community is proud of, what this community would like to make change around, uh, what are the big topics that are consuming people's lives. And then, and then slowly we kind of we bring in the opportunity to talk about different ways that they can come together over the things that are important. And sometimes that results in finding some great work to bring into that community and for those artists to work directly with that community to share skills and, and share practice, but also might, might be about sharing an exhibition or a performative outcome. And in, in other cases, which are the cases that I really live for, are where we start with a story that is of that place and we work with artists relevant to that story and, and to that community and we build something completely new uh, and then with, with the right permissions around that, we then can share that new work with, with more regional communities or, in fact, with other communities that for which um, it would, you know, strike a chord. Um, and so, the, for me, it's that concept of conversation, that concept of relationship building, which really comes down to trust. For me, the big thing around that is time. Building trust will take as long as it needs to take. 
And as artists, we know that making work takes as long as it needs to take. And so there's a great synergy there and we just need to battle against the kind of constraints that we work within to give that time so that when we do land something, it is built through a good process and it's shared by everyone and owned by everyone and then everyone comes to see it. And so it builds those audiences you were talking about, Cara, because actually people have been part of that conversation from the very moment it started. And that is something we talk a lot about in the book as well, is that trust takes so much time to build and no time at all to lose. Uh, and losing that trust doesn't just damage that relationship with your organisation, but but builds that distrust of work with the arts in general or working with outside organisations um, in general. So we kind of have a collective responsibility in a way. We've already talked about the importance of things like asking and listening, clearly over a beverage of some variety, um, the importance of compassion and empathy, and Claire, as you said, of considering generations beyond ourselves. Um, how else, uh, and this is a question to all or any of you, how else can arts organisations or individual practitioners be allies for this type of work, for this type of change? Well, there's a couple of things that, that come to my mind immediately. One of them seems trite until you think about it, and the other one's possibly a bit deeper. The trite one is, which isn't really that trite, nobody can rebuild something quicker than a theatre hand. <laughs> so, so during a disaster, why aren't um, theatre organisations mobilising all their car- theatre stage carpenters, lighting engineers, et cetera, to go join the rebuild teams and just go off and build something. No, because artists, that's just an example, artists are really good at actually getting stuff done without with no budget and no time. So that's a, that's kind of helpful in a, in a practical sense. But in a kind of more profound sense, um, to continue what really the conversation has been going on so far, arts is really good at, um, at helping people to unpack the negative feelings and the trauma of, of, an, of an event so and there have been many cases of artists going in and doing art projects in collaboration with the local people after a disaster and giving people the opportunity to vent through art can be very helpful. And that's something that I, I think we often talk about this idea that arts as part of the emotional recovery or the emotional recovery in general from a disaster is kind of an afterthought. Whereas in a way, helping people emotionally handle the disaster should be at the forefront of people's minds because um, you can rebuild a building, but you can't rebuild a broken heart. And there's a, and that's a, a very important thing to my mind. I think the thing for me is about the language that we use when we're in those moments too. I mean, creating space for people to be heard and, and to acknowledge what they're sharing because, um, you know, that's of vital importance, but also it's about how we then respond to that. And, um, you know, Cara and I were talking earlier about um, different points of view around this particular, um, the, the, the way that this could be done. I, I choose quite particularly not to talk a lot about arts and culture when I first walk into a community or if I'm in a meeting, for example, with a local government agency or a local government. Um, I, don't, I don't necessarily put art on the table to begin with. I start with a bigger conversation around the community and what, it, what is, you know, how would they like to see their community changed? And then, and, then I, and then I use the words arts and culture as a way of talking about a language to make that change. And I think that's something, you know, Kari, you made a really important point, I think, earlier about the concept that we're really good at talking within ourselves, but um, we really need to work out how do we talk outside of the arts sector because we know the arts changes the world. 
and what we need is for um, is is to find the right right way to demonstrate and talk about that, so that others in other fields that we equally need can we, we can work collaboratively and make that change collectively. And um, I mean, it's a it's a kind of a long term lifelong challenge and goal of mine is to find that way of of talking about the impact that we know we make uh, in a way that someone who doesn't feel like they've had that before or who are not part of the sector can understand that and want to join in that conversation. I think that's where the I think that's where the opportunity really does lie um, at the moment. And you know, we've been set, we've been apart because COVID has kept us apart. There's a want to come together, and so. If we can find that language, then I think we can actually really maximise that opportunity. I was just going to add to that because in in the first question you sort of talk about allyship and I think that, you know, you've said all of it and your answer before actually applies to both agencies and individuals and it reminds me um, there's a great book called The Relationship is the Project. Um, (laughs) But I think that this, what you're talking about is exactly the point. It is about language. It is about trust and it is about how you are mitigating the feeling of kind of each moment in a sense. I think for me allyship is really the capacity to sit awkwardly through a conversation that you're having either bad feelings, awkward feelings, humiliating feelings, joyous feelings, guilty feelings or anything and your capacity to actually be able to navigate your way through that. I think in this country we've got, we've forgotten how to sit awkwardly in conversation. I think we've, in the arts, we've gotten very good at um, forgetting as well because actually what we're really good at is congratulating ourselves. Well done, everybody. Aren't we amazing? Celebrational. Um, hashtag. Uh, you can hashtag that from the podcast this evening. Uh, that we've forgotten the awkwardness of what it means to build and generate a relationship that will have to navigate trickiness from time to time. And that's what ally, good allyship is, either as an organisation or as an individual, but it will always come back to an individual's capacity to be able to work their way through that awkwardness. And I think going back to a bit of the the work that I see that I end up doing all the time when people say, well, what does First Nations engagement mean? And I say, well, actually, I spend most of my time trying to get people to feel comfortable enough to have an awkward conversation and where our fear of each other's assumptions about perhaps our ideas or what we think we're going to say to erode that fear. I increasingly see a kind of society surrounded and, and, and suffocating in fear. And so I think this idea about how do we work together, all the things, the language and why it is important that we we can take these skills, we've built this really awesome muscle in the arts and creative industries. Um, it's, it's about critical thinking. It's about the capacity to look at something closely and from a distance and to you know, do all that sort of cool stuff that we do in the arts. There I go congratulating myself again. But I think, you know, it reminds me, Jade Lilly, who is a superstar, if she's got, they're going to listen to this later because she'll, she, I hope that checks in the mail for that comment. Um, no, I'm kidding. She's a rock star. And this book was a really good idea and, in fact, is in its own creation um, a great example of bringing people together for a collective purpose to kind of help people feel less scared about the work they're going to embark on. And 
One of the things that Jade did when we were both working at the Australia Council, I remember a meeting she had with um, some some leadership and cross-industry CEOs and the the provocation was put to the table. What is it that the arts and culture and creative industries can do for your workplace, for your industry? And I understand that resoundingly the answer came back, you know, repeatedly in these words. It was heal trauma. It was compassion, build compassion in our staff and empathy. And the third one was rebrand our nation. Now, when we think about that, that came from, in you know, industry outside of the arts and creative industries. That is both an immeasurable thing to to do. How do you measure happiness and healing trauma in a work context? Well, obviously it's about productivity, but this is where I think we've done our disservice in this industry is that we've not really convinced people well enough how connected to the arts, to critical thinking they really are. If I can indulge you guys for a bit longer, I'll tell you at the National Gallery we've just done a um, in the partnership space, we've done a partnership with a corporate partner who we did the National Art Talk series with and we took the National Indigenous Art Triennial Ceremony Exhibition. We had a in conversation with an artist and a curator and I did the guff up the front with all of the emceeing parts but really that was because I'm really deeply interested in it. again to remind people how connected to this story that they may be about to encounter, how closely related it might be to some of their work around strategy. I always love this point too, if I can just keep talking a bit longer, Anthony. Um, (laughs) I love this point too, how our language can be co-opted. When did creative accounting start? In the 90s? You know, there's, there's language that has crossed over, but I guess that point is about We've got lots of work to do that's a lot of invisible work that we know we're doing, but we need to start getting it out there. Thank you. Um, I want to pick up on this idea of um, trust that we've been talking about and, you know, when we're in the rooms together, together, as you say, uh, Cara, having those uncomfortable conversations. But how do we make sure the right people are in the room in the first place? Obviously, we, you know, in that self-congratulatory space, we, um, and in the resource-strapped environment a lot of um, arts organisations work in, um, it is a lot easier to operate within a bubble often, um, and that means we've got the same people making decision decisions in the same old rooms. Um, but how, if we are, if we are wanting to engender that trust? We're wanting to make those spaces safe and to pick up on a conversation we've been having at Guildhouse earlier this week, um, how do we find the people we don't already have connections to, including the ones who might not think about themselves as an artist or as connected in that way? Any thoughts on how we get the right people in the room? At the Centre for Rewilding, when we do our public programming events or when we do um, workshops. One of the one of the artistry practices is delivering artist creative development type workshops to non artists, which is they find this idea that we basically sit around and play games, and then we have something to show at the end that's actually some creative thinking they never thought of. And we, we of course we sell this as kind of market almost bordering on corporate development because they love, they the, the companies love this idea of spending money on something that's going to make them all better at their job. Or we sell it to people like um, local government emergency management teams saying, we'll help you think of map scenarios you've never thought of. And then we just we do the, the artist thing of playing games and then it's um, it creates something. But 
then that's a case of often in the, when we're working in a room with, this, with those projects, the artists in the room are a very small minority. The people with an arts knowledge are small, which can be a useful thing because what you're trying to do is, is um, expanding. We don't need to tell artists how to do art. That's kind of our job. It's like telling a plumber how to fix pipes. You don't do that. But we do need to, we might need to tell people why they need a plumber. So what we're doing is we're telling people when we do these events why they need to engage with artists. That's, and so the people in the room, I think they should be the starting point. Who you want in the room should be the starting point of a project. And then I mean, other projects I've done, have, have, there's been a lot, a, large, a lot of discussions on how you make sure the right people in the room. And the, um, I think all those discussions have to start with having a kind of a clear idea who should be in the room, which is um, not just thinking about audience, but it's also thinking about what you're trying to achieve. And, of course, the other one of the tricks we do do um, when we're doing workshops is if you ever do um, a, a kind of development workshop with people who are not artists or that sort of thing, they'll always tend to congregate with people they know. So the first thing we do is we'll say, make sure there's an artist at the table with you if you're not an artist. If you're an artist, make sure there's a non-artist at the table and make sure that most of the people on the table are people you don't know. And that, that kind of creates different relationships because people start thinking about people they don't know and say, well, I don't know this person, and then they get them involved. And we found we've worked with, we've worked with organisations more than once. They tend to try and they tend to bring other people from the organisation along because they want to bring people along to this kind of idea and, and evangelise about good work. So it's a case of I, I, don't, I don't know, there's no single answer to getting the right people in the room, but it is actually the most important, sometimes the most important part of the process. I agree entirely. For me, the concept of trying to get the right people in the right room is, kind of presses every button I have because really what it means is, is about being curious. It's about walking into a room, even in the room we're in today. I mean, there's some people I don't know at all and I hope to say hello to them at the end of the podcast um, because you just never know where that hello might lead and it might not be that particular person that you've struck up a conversation with who needs to be in the room, but they might put you on to somebody else who actually does need to be desperately in that room because the conversation that you are having might have an impact on them. So it's 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 not a it's a continuous journey, and it's a long game. It's like um, you know we're in the room now, but we'll be in a different room in a week's time, and the conversation will ever so incrementally keep growing, and the, and and then impact will slowly start to happen, of course, along the way as well. So it's not a finite thing, as we all know, and and, and I think that's the challenge that I've that I've got personally is like every time I walk into a room, it's like, okay, so I must talk to someone who I do not know because I never know where this will take us. And it could be the one thing that actually really helps to propel something that we've really been trying to do. If I could just add, there's something that we do at the end of Centre of Reward and we've started doing, which is saying to somebody, think, I want you to think of before you leave this room, one thing that you want to leave this room and tell to someone who wasn't here. And then they they go and they tell somebody this thing that they that they learn in the room, and which also makes uh, makes other people want to be in the room next time. So it's kind of this um, this idea of like, yeah, what's the one thing you need to know that someone else needs to know? I think that idea is marketing. Well done. <laughs> I think in sort of listening to that story there too, I think it's about you know you're in you've got the right people in the room if you yourself as a facilitator are feeling a little awkward. If you're not awkward, that means you've got too many friends in the in the circle and you might not necessarily be in the right spot or the right people are in the room. Yeah. 
Unless what's making you feel comfortable is being awkward and then you need to reassess where you're <laughs> yeah. sitting on that spectrum. And um, if, if you're having to take breaks every now and then to fix some sort of personal crisis or someone being triggered, you've probably got the right people in the room. If something hasn't worked and you have to stop everything to try and fix it, there's probably the right people in the room because if it's all easy, then it's too easy. The other, um, another way, another strategy we can use um, to increase representation when we've, when we've identified that we are perhaps not being as representative as our constituency or as, you know, uh, of the community that we're trying to work with, and this obviously requires on resourcing, but it's the money story question as well. And so Country Arts, uh, one of the way you ensure regional people are in the room is to employ them, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, uh, and, and, you know, when when you um, put these questions to us, Kate, ahead of ahead to think about, I mean, when, I kind of had two answers to that question about how to get the right people in the room. One was the one I talked about in, earlier, but the other one is actually to, to manufacture to make sure that there are at least voices in the room that might be representative of the conversations you think you might need to have. And they might not be right at the time, but it, and so long as you create a, a, you know, a safe environment for the conversations to be shared and acknowledged, et cetera, and respected, then I think that that can also be a way of kind of uh, opening, opening up other people's thinking about actually that conversation would have been missing if that person wasn't in the room and we do need to find out more and then, and then building from, from that point. But your question right now really is about, the way I view that, it is about actually it takes a change of thinking. I always think I've got to take myself out of my body and think about actually what is the impact that I want to create in whatever it is we're doing and rather than thinking what would I do in this scenario, it's, I, would, I, I need to try and put myself in the new scenario and go, who is already there who I can strike a, a conversation with and find out if they're interested in leading that, that conversation. So it's about removing myself from my office in Port Adelaide, hopping into the car or a plane or whatever is, you know, uh, is the right method of getting to the community that we need to be at if we're talking about a geographic location. And again, asking a whole lot of questions about who's, who's in this community, who's interested in building in the way that we're interested in building, what capacity do they have to work with us? And ultimately, um, you know, it, can we actually then strike up a relationship, which means that they are part of the work that we're doing and we're working collectively, but they are the lead because they are the one in that community. You know, when the rubber hits the road, they're the one in the, as I keep saying to my staff, in the cucumber aisle, when things don't work properly and they go, why did you do that? Whereas I'm still in Port Adelaide going home, off to my home, you know, feeling really good about what we've done. So, you know, it's that kind of scenario is really important to, to have that ownership and that decision-making power locally with that context that the organisation like Country Arts can provide so that there is that governance and that safety and that process all around it. But it's all happening where it needs to happen. On that, I like that that concept of having to step outside ourselves raises for me the the principle that in this kind of work there is very little room for ego. Um, in, and, in fact, you know, many of us in who work in the community engage in the community-led space, specifically if we're working with communities that we don't personally identify as a member of ourselves, even if we're even if it's, um, a difference of a few hundred kilometres from the city to a regional area, then... Um, one of the things we can do to be allies for that work is not to be at the front of it, not to be the face of that project. Do any of you have any thoughts on how as practitioners we can, is, is that a skill we can learn? How do we, how can we be allies for this work by taking ourselves out of the spotlight? Yeah, I was going to bang on about that for a minute. Ego is a, can be a disaster for this, for this work, for all work, I would say. I think we also are kind of seeing 
if I could jump out in a macro sense for a minute in a big geopolitical way, ego is tearing apart the entire globe with wars and personal whatevers. I don't know. It's very weird. And somehow ego has infiltrated our notion of what leaders and what leadership should look like, which I think is a major faux pas. I was just thinking about this earlier today. When I find myself in a position where it's feeling tense and I've got to confront something, a work-related matter, I have just started to train my thinking into the steps of take a breath, lead with generosity, lead with graciousness, but be, be fair and strong or be fair and firm. So, you know, sometimes I think, I don't know how to say this, I think there's a difference between a, a kind of a, a humble confidence. And in fact, you can see good leaders who can quite easily, um, they bring with. Leaders with ego find themselves out in the front walking at their own pace um, and, and looking behind them for where the crowd is, whereas I think the kind of leadership model that this CACD model of practice encourages people to walk collectively because we know it's stronger and it's a better outcome for everybody. You know, I love that you started with the generations. What, what are we thinking about before? There's a really great um, Native American proverb that talks about preparedness for, for seven generations' time or five generations' time. And I think that that is something as a as an Aboriginal person, you we you just carry in your DNA. It's a, we're always thinking about future generations. And I think that that enables a collective sense of being where ego is all about a singular kind of form, which breeds a little bit of like a bad champagne in your mouth. Who wants a champagne? Clearly I do. I'd like a nice one too. It's French. So <laughs> a champagne is actually the currency of the arts industry. Yeah. And if there's any French champagnes out there that are looking to sponsor a First Nations <laughs> program, my name's Cara Kirkwood and I work at the National Gallery of Australia. I might pick up, oh, I do enjoy a glass of champagne every now and again, but I think, I think actually, that, you know, we've been talking about relationship building, we've been talking about arts and culture as though it's something distinct from everything that, you know, we live for generally. The conversation we did have earlier really is that, from my perspective, I should be looking at how our First Nations communities and artists already do it. Like it's already happening. And I see my role as making space to get a deeper understanding around that and also to, to make space for great First Nations, uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists and arts workers to be leading so that we can change how we think about our work in, in a holistic way. And it's amazingly complex but also very, very simple. It's really just about... From my perspective, it's really about this, the relationship building and the respect of each other, um, you know, the whole uh, acknowledgement of country or welcome, you know, all, all of that. Like, it's you don't step into my space until we've had a conversation and, and, and there's that respect to begin with. And I think, actually, it's it's the one massive opportunity we've got in our sector, in, in all parts of our sector, right from an in, in, in individual practitioner thinking about you know, what is next for them in terms of their career and their craft and how they engage with other makers, right through to big organisations. And maybe there's a bigger impost, probably there very very likely is a bigger impost on the larger organisations to make space for this because that's the change I think we need to make. And I think when we make that change, then everything else kind of follows. 
can I just rip into something which I reckon might fire you up? Could be anything. That very bunch of words that you've just said, I think there's a really clear example that we're about to face in Australia in the next couple of years, and it's the voice to parliament. One, the voice to parliament is one of the most complex examples of how on one side, for example, I love my I love my work, I love my job because what I get to do is elevate and illustrate and demonstrate how simple and awesome First Nations kind of leadership and, you know, I look around, when I say leadership, it's not just mine, it's not about me, it's about the people that I work with that I get to go, holy shit, look at these amazing people I get to work with and push them up everywhere I can. How cool is that for a job? Like, that's awesome. So on one side, I get to elevate First Nations leadership models and people and ways of being. On the other side of the role here, the biggest challenge to what we're looking at in the next couple of years is how we do not have a shared language. We do not even have a language other than a very old derogatory tense language of racialism about what is it for non-Indigenous people who have got positions of power, what will it take, what what does it mean to actually step aside and allow space for First Nations decision makers? That does not have a language. White fellas don't have a language for that. Black fellas don't have a language for that. We kind of do, but it's not been heard for decades and decades and centuries. But that's a language that has to be generated from non-black fellas about what their shared power is and how they might be able to share that power with other people. Taxi. Um, And what is required in that. And that is a critical, complex example of exactly what you're talking about, Anthony. And and there was something you said that got me a bit fired up. So here here we go. Look, if there's only one thing I've learned over the last few years, it it is this. Colonisation was brought to us by the white fella. That is unambiguous. That means responsibility for correcting the the problems caused by colonisation belongs to the white fella. It's so often the emotional labour of fighting colonisation falls on us. It shouldn't. We, it is not our responsibility. And the voice to parliament thing, the Uluru statement, that's something that um, Aboriginal people are fighting about amongst ourselves. That's, that's, that's true. That's a, a kind of a self-evident fact. We, not, we are not agreeing. But um, my friend Sally Scales said it perfectly once. She said, we're not, we're, not, um, we're not all agreeing. But you know what? You white fellas don't all agree either. To think that we should have to agree on this is actually racist. We're allowed to have differences of opinion. And, I, I mean, I can't, I'm not even sure. I, I'm, I, I have differences of opinion. <laughs> um, and, um, so I, I don't see why we can't have differences of opinion. But in, at the end of it, though, the voice of parliament like anything else involving a theoretical decolonisation of this continent, will only be lip service unless the emotional labour of decolonising this continent is done by the people who cause the colonisation, which is the white fellas. You, you can't just say, oh, we've given you a voice to parliament, therefore everything's okay, if that's what happens. Or you can't say, you didn't want a voice to parliament, we didn't give you one, that you've now got what you want. What you have to say is, Okay, we've done what, what has what has happened. Now, what can we do to make this okay? Because it's your responsibility, not ours. And I'm sick of this idea that Aboriginal people have to take responsibility for all the emotional labour of decolonising. You fired me up now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, because I was going to say I accidentally at a at a friend's fortieth party accidentally made a speech the other weekend, as one does at a fortieth party, of which there was no speeches, just karaoke. 
But here I was making an accidental speech because I found myself in that space saying to people, this is no longer in our hands. We are a minority. We're 3% of this population, of the voting population of our very small 3%. We're probably 1.5, if that. So the Labor, it actually can't be in our hands. It's entirely over into the into the mainstream population. And so I spend time now saying, you know, I'm not standing here to tell you to vote yes or no. I'm standing here to ask you to please read, please be informed, please read up the history, you know, watch the Australian wars, watch the things that kind of, that Australian wars is a magnificent provocation. Love that word. My partner's at home going, I hate it when you say that. <laughs> It's a magnificent provocation around a very cool other example where we lost more Australians, and I mean white Australians, in the Australian frontier wars than we have in any other war. What is there not to remember our Australian people and therefore our shared history and therefore our black and our white history in this country? You know, part of the work I do too, you know, we're always, there's always this argument in agencies, well, um, it's an Indigenous artwork, so Indigenous people should do the tour. Or, you know, when I worked at Parliament House, it was about designing an Aboriginal tour and it was, you know, well, only Aboriginal people can take the tour. And we would talk about the national apology that was in the case over there and we'd talk about the Barunga Statement, we'd talk about hard moments, the referendum out of the papers. And I had to spend a lot of time saying, no, 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 this is not just a black story. This is your story. So you talk about it because you know what? Yeah, it feels uncomfortable and yeah, it might make you feel a bit emo standing up there talking about the apology because, you know, your mum knew a, a, had a friend who was an Aboriginal woman whose nana was stolen, whatever, all the things. Of course, it might make you feel a bit thing. It's code for like bad. <laughs> um, you know what I was saying? But that's part of the whole way forward. Thanks. Thanks for listening. I'll be here same time tomorrow. <laughs> I just want to watch this happen for the next eight hours. But I'm going to leap off and, and and use that as an example of one of the um, key strengths and but also one of the key failing areas of what has been in the past not always great practice in working with communities. And again, specifically when practitioners work with and organisations work with communities of which they don't personally um, identify is that it can get, uh, it can often get quite siloed. And so we'll talk about, we'll only talk about First Nations issues with this one group of First Nations people. We'll only talk about regional um, isolation when we go into the regions. But we are all always more than one thing. And as you say, in the First Nations space, we cannot have a conversation in Australia without a conversation about all of the the issues of colonisation and the, um, the ongoing impacts thereof. I also really love this conversation about how language changes over time, practice changes over time. And this, as you say, these new issues or the new zeitgeist around these issues, the final, the finally getting the attention that they deserve, are going to take a lot of awkward conversations in a lot of rooms, um, which is kind of exciting that we're at least having those conversations now. But that language, the fact that that language changes is exciting but also very challenging to people. Australia has a very long history of community-engaged practice or um, more commonly known as community arts and cultural development. Those are older terms. Um, It's also traditionally the 40-, 50-year practice has been characterised by projects being led by people who look like me, middle-class, middle-aged white women um, with asymmetrical haircuts. But you don't have the, the wide-room glasses. I don't have. I could work on, work on getting more arty glasses frames. But, but there is a, 
uh, there is an evolution of practice happening that is moving from that almost charity model, working for community, um, to a much more um, uh, a transfer of power to that nothing about us without us space, so that community-led practice space. What's left? What's the work that needs to be done to push us further into that agenda? I've got one. Can I jump in with one? One of the things that they talk about in the book, which I think is in Jade's, one of Jade's writings, is that we have to fail. We have to be okay to make mistakes. And I think it's a real Western, I think it's a real English kind of be polite, um, hangover. Oh, you don't make mistakes. That's really humiliating. So we've been taught to be humiliated or feel humiliated, embarrassed and shamed every time we might go and try or lean in for a hard conversation and then we fail. But the failing is part of it and the failing is actually winning as long as you're learning from that and building the muscle to keep going back. But I think it's called epic fails in the book um, and epic fails are really important to move forward. I I was just going to challenge your premise, Kate, that in fact that there are lots of us already doing that and what is the next thing? I feel like there aren't a lot of us doing or even acknowledging that that's the thing we should be doing. I think there's still a lot of parts of the sector that are really happy to be doing what we've always been doing and making sure there's a great diet of things to come and buy a ticket to and then the service is done, tick. And look, I'm not, it's very difficult to make those very broad statements because of course it doesn't apply to everyone and there are some amazing uh, organisations and individual artists who are really, you know, changing um, the face of what what is presented in terms of arts and culture in this country. But I, I mean, even at Country Arts every day, I challenge myself to think, yes, we live and breathe that, but actually... Are we doing it in the right way now? Because, you know, everything changes all the time. And and when you work with one community and you then you go to, to work with a separate community, you have to start all over again because no two communities are the same. And so I think there's still a lot more that all of us, even those of us who are in that space, are constantly doing to kind of do it better. And that power transference that you're talking about, that's the thing that I find personally quite the next level. It's like how do we actually do that in a way that's not me handing you something that I've got? Because, you know, I, it, you know, I do have it, but it's not really, it, it, that's not the conversation I want to be having. I've got something that's kind of a bit of a tangent, but we've got to go there. There's a common, look, as a, as a writer, I'm perfectly aware that of all art forms, we've had the longest lack of nothing about us without us. As in 90% of books about Aboriginal people in Australia have been written by white people. In the visual arts, Aboriginal art outperforms most white art in Australia. In film, we've got a lot of great filmmakers now, but still it's really hard to get books published. Now, really, again, um, the responsibility needs to be on the dominant mainstream culture in this situation. And the, the one people ask me often, how do they stop this idea of white people writing most books about Aboriginal people? Now, some publishers will not accept for publication, books about Aboriginal culture by white people anymore. Some still do, but most of them don't now. But the, the question of when, what I often say to people, and this is really a question that people need to be thinking more, which is are you the person to do this work? Is this yours to do? Not is, um, are you allowed to do this, but should you pull yourself back and let someone else do this first? That leads some people to say, um, some white people to say, oh, does that mean I can't write about Aboriginal people? or write an Aboriginal character or something. But then the classic answer is, well, you can because you're white and you've interacted with Aboriginal people. You can write the white story on the colonisation side and there's, there's nothing wrong with that. I think we need to encourage people to ask themselves at all times whether it should be them. And I do that as well. I, I look at a situation and go, is this mine? Do I, should I do this? 
And sometimes I go, no, I shouldn't. And I've handed things off saying, no, I can't do this. Like um, even um, as an as a Noongar um, woman, I've been asked to write things about other communities that I've never, I've got no connection to, I've never even been to their land. I'll just say, no, I think you need to find someone from that community to do it because it's not mine. And I think deep down we always talk about personal responsibility, but in reality the onus is on all of us to be the best collaborator, the best artist, the best ally we can actually be. It's not a case of being t- telling someone you need to be an ally or finding the right allies. Each of us has to be that right ally. And if everyone is the right ally, then there won't be any bad allies. And I love that example that sometimes um, stepping up means stepping, stepping out, stepping out of the room entirely. This book, um, The Relationships of Project, is uh, now nearly three years old somehow. And in a, you're hearing it, Guildhouse first, uh, we are thrilled that we, um, the ebook is about to be made available for free. So keep your eye on the relationshipistheproject.com.au website for that to get your hands on the copy of the first edition. We're also hoping to very shortly start work on the second edition, which will have work by Claire and Anthony in it, uh, as, long as, as well as another, I think, um, eight new chapters for the new edition. We are almost out of our time together, but building on what um, Claire was talking about earlier about the Centre for Rewilding being born into the world from an artistic idea coming out of speculative fiction um, to be a real change in the world, I'd love to know in, in the three years' future when the second edition is having its a similar conversation What's the change in the world you'd like to see? What What's in this work around community engaged and community-led practice? What's the difference that you would like us to be talking about in three years from today, other than the obviously the weather and still being here, which would be um, a great first start? Any initial thoughts? I can tell you how I want to feel in three years' time, which is I want to feel less anxious about all of the things. I want to feel that when I go to do my work that people are more confident and ready to just be a bit more themselves. I want to feel excited that people are collaborating better, leaning in. I know that everyone goes, I hate leaning in. I hate that phrase, but I want people to feel comfortable that they can get in awkward conversations and walk away from them and they're going to be okay and that, in fact, they've built some muscle to, to do it better the next time, that will make me less anxious and that would feel amazing. Firstly, thank you, Cara, for starting off because it's such a big question and I'm going, how do you answer such a question, really? Firstly, on my behalf, I want somebody else in this conversation rather than me anyone really but but um <laughs> you know because if I'm here in three years time then really not a lot has changed even though I may have changed in that time if I use a term I hate really a phrase I hate but the measure of success for me will be when someone talks to me whether we're at the bar or in a tea house or even in my office and they're not from the organization and they actually initiate a conversation a new conversation that I go oh my god why the hell did we not think of that because that's exactly what is needed now that's, that for me will be will be a demonstration that actually the work that we're all collectively doing has made a change. Um, a change I'd like to see is um, when kind of minority and intersectional voices, um, at the moment we've got that kind of a own voices movement in our, you know, encouraging people to tell their own stories. What, what I would like to see is 
a world where there's such active assistance for for people to get started as artists if they're not from the mainstream background that people who people that people no longer believe their voice is one that no one wants to listen to because because a lot of people in in our communities feel that they've got nothing to say or that no one cares and I'd, I'd like that to no longer exist and that's a big ask that's going to be a lot of work but I came to the arts literally for homeless on the streets and I would like to see a world where someone like me appearing on the arts scene with no training, no education in the arts, whose, whose voice has been silenced, whose voice has been silenced, someone like me appearing on the scene is no longer an anomaly. Thank you all for helping leave us this conversation on that note of hope, which I think is in short supply right now. But I also for sharing, I think, some really practical advice for how we can all be part of that change we want to see. Uh, wishing everybody in the podcast verse solidarity in this work that you're doing and gratitude. And I have such gratitude for our amazing panel today. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to the Revision podcast series recorded on Ghana Country. This series is brought to you by Guildhouse, our supporting partners and session speakers. Please head to our website guildhouse.org.au for more information on the series and our artistic collaborations with and professional development opportunities for Australian artists. Revision was developed with support from Australia Council for the Arts, the Day Family Foundation and Creative Partnerships Australia and has continued through the generous philanthropic support of the Guildhouse Creative Visionaries.